I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 203 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. This time, a much shorter time period has passed since I released an episode, so I'm getting better. I will tell you that a couple of months ago, our family decided to move to a different state in the near future, and let me just say that getting an entire household ready to list the house for sale can be quite time-consuming and stressful, and I haven't had nearly as much time to commit to this podcast as I would like. That being said, I'm going to try to do better moving forward before we move, but no promises. Today's episode, like many episodes, is one that has been on my list to do for years. It's perfect for this Christmas season because it's lighthearted and it took place 86 years ago this week. To be exact, it happened on December 21st, 1937. I'm taking today's famous headline from the Anniston Star out of Anniston, Alabama. It's accompanied by multiple pictures that I would dare say anyone could recognize. It says, Heroin safe, dwarfs chase witch as premier of Snow White nears. Friends, December 21st, 1937 was the day that Disney's full-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, made its Hollywood debut. The movie was the first of what would eventually be many full-length animated Technicolor films that Disney would release over the next 86 years. Now, it's important to know that the movie got a lot of hype when it debuted that day. But the debut was just for an elite Hollywood crowd who could go on to talk about it and promote it and hype the movie before it was released to the general public a couple of months later. Some of the people in attendance that day were people like Charlie Chaplin and Shirley Temple. And the stars and the critics were in agreement. They loved the film, and they knew that Walt Disney had a hit on his hands. What's interesting is that when Disney started making the film, he had to mortgage his house and borrow a lot of money to do so. It cost $1.5 million to make the movie. That might not seem like a whole lot, but compared to now, it's like $33 million. For something that was a huge risk. And considering that this was the 1930s, the country was still in the middle of the Great Depression. So it was a lot of money, and it was a big gamble. But don't worry, when the movie was released to all, it raked in $8 million or today's equivalent of $173 million. Not bad. When Walt Disney first started working on the project, a lot of people told him it wouldn't work. Even his wife tried to discourage him from the project. They insisted that nobody, at least not adults, would sit through a feature-length cartoon about dwarfs. Luckily, for cinematic history, Walt Disney ignored those voices. Working with a staff that would eventually grow to 600 people, this is how the newspaper article described the work that had to be done to complete the film. It says, Cameras merely click, and slowly a photographer adjusts a painted background. Then he pushes a button, 
and the camera clicks one, recording a split instant of suspended animation. To make the picture move, there must be 24 of these carefully arranged shots for every second that Snow White runs on the screen. That will mean for this first full-length animated feature, about 150,000 frames of film and at least 100,000 more to be lost in the editing, cutting, and retakes. So, after four years and a lot of hard work, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was finally ready to make its debut. The film went on to win many awards, and in 2008, the American Film Institute named it the number one animated film of all time. But enough about fairy tales. Let's find out what was happening in real life on December 21st, 1937. Okay, for my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from Baraboo News Republic out of Baraboo, Wisconsin. And I have no idea if I pronounced that town name right, so if not, I apologize. The article is dated December 21st, 1937, and the headline says, Secluded Murder Villa Gives Up Bluebird Gang Victims. Now, I should probably make it clear that the article accompanying this headline is just a few lines long. The newspaper's page is kind of a world in review picture page, so it doesn't go into a lot of detail. But the three pictures accompanying the headline definitely made me want to do some more digging. I will say that different sources I found listed slightly different details about this story, and even different names for some of the people involved. And the newspaper headline called the group the Bluebeard Gang. But that's pretty much the only time I saw them called that. It makes reference to a French serial killer from 20-something years earlier than this story. In doing some more digging, I found out that one member of the gang has a historical claim to their name that will never be taken away. We'll get to that later. First, I'll say that most of this story takes place in Paris. But our main character was a man named Eugen Wiedemann, and Eugen was born in Frankfurt, Germany. His father was a businessman there who dealt in exports. When Eugen was a young boy, World War I broke out in Europe, and like so many other children at the time, he was sent out of the city to live with his grandparents. Unfortunately, he picked up some bad habits while he was away, and one of those habits was stealing. By the time he was in his 20s, Eugen was charged with robbery and spent five years in jail because of it. I'm not sure what he stole, but this was France, so maybe it was just a loaf of bread. I'm kidding. Anyway, while he was in jail, and I believe he was actually still in Germany for this part, he met two men who became friends and partners in crime. Roger Millian and Jean Blanc. While the three of them were locked up, with way too much time on their hands, they came up with a plan to make a little money when they were all released. They decided they would scout for rich tourists visiting Paris, win them over, and then steal all of their money. They believed it was a genius plan, and soon moved to a villa just outside Paris to start executing this well-thought-out plan. 
I'm not sure when their first kidnapping took place, but their victim was a man who didn't want to be kidnapped. Imagine that. He struggled so hard and fought so hard for his freedom that the men eventually just gave up on their plan and set the man free. Well, that's not quite how things worked out when it came to 22-year-old Jean DeCoven. Jean lived in New York City and worked as a dancer there. She was in Paris either visiting with her Aunt Ida or visiting her Aunt Ida. That was unclear in multiple sources. Anyway, while she was there, she suddenly met a man, an extremely handsome man. He talked to her, and he listened to her, and he made her feel like a million dollars. Now, Eugene didn't introduce himself to Jean by his real name, but rather he told her his name was Siegfried. After meeting him, Jean wrote to a friend and said, quote, I have just met a charming German of keen intelligence who calls himself Siegfried. Perhaps I am going to another Wagnerian role. Who knows? I'm going to visit him tomorrow at his villa in a beautiful place near a famous mansion that Napoleon gave Josephine. So Jean met with Eugen slash Siegfried and thought that she was there to be on a date. They smoked together, and Eugen gave her a glass of milk. How do we know this? Because Jean had a new camera. And while she was at the villa, she took pictures of herself and Eugen hanging out together. That camera would end up being a really important piece of evidence. You see, when Jean's body was eventually found, the camera was buried right there with her. After hanging out for a while, Eugen turned on Jean. I don't think anyone knows for sure how the whole thing went down, but he strangled her and then robbed her of all the money she had on her, including a bunch of money in traveler's checks. As a side note, I am so glad we don't have to use traveler's checks anymore because they're kind of a pain. And they were a pain back in 1937, too. In order for Eugen and his gang to use those traveler's checks, they needed a woman to pose as Jean DeCoven. So, they gave the checks to Roger Millian's girlfriend, and she cashed them. What did they do with Jean's body? They buried her in the yard of the villa. Now, all of this is pretty bad, but the men still weren't done. Remember how Jean had gone to Paris with or to be with her Aunt Ida? Well, the men also sent a ransom note to Aunt Ida, telling her that they had Jean and wouldn't release her unless she paid 500 francs. Jean's brother came from New York to help in the search, and he even came with $10,000 in reward money from their father. Since their plan worked so well that second time, the group decided to do it all over again just two months later. That time, Eugen hired a chauffeur named Joseph Coffey, telling the man that he needed someone to drive him to the French Riviera. Except along the way, Eugen shot him in the back and then stole his car and all the money that Joseph had on him, which was quite a bit. That all happened on September 1st. Just two days later, the gang would commit murder for a third time. Eugen and Roger contacted a private nurse named Janine Keller. Again, I don't know what story they gave her, 
but somehow the duo tricked her into going into a cave with them in the forest. And can you guess what happened next? Yep, they killed her. Just like with Joseph the chauffeur, Eugen shot Janine in the back of the neck. Again, they took all her money and a diamond ring she was wearing. The following month, on October 16th, Eugen and Roger tricked a theater producer into meeting up with them, telling him that they wanted to invest in one of his productions. Just like before, Eugen shot him in the back of the head and they stole all his money. The men were barely having to do anything, and the money just rolled in for them. So, they murdered again. The fifth murder came in November of 1937. That time, the murder was a little different than the previous four murders. You see, Eugen Vedeman already knew his victim, a man that he had met in jail named Fritz Frommer. Fritz was Jewish, and because he spoke out against the Nazi party, he was thrown in jail. In a total act of betrayal, Eugen shot him in the back of the head, stole all of his money, and then buried his body in the basement of the villa just outside Paris. The same villa where Jean de Coven had been buried just a few months earlier. Just five days after murder six, Eugen would go on to commit his sixth and final murder. Well, at least that we know of. That time, he had a real estate agent show him around a house. Then, like he did with everyone but Jean, he shot the agent in the back of the head and stole his money. Now, Eugen and his gang of men might have gone on murdering indefinitely if it weren't for a mistake that he made with the realtor. When he visited the man's office, he'd left a business card behind. It led the police right to his doorstep and three of them were waiting in the villa for Eugen when he got home one day. Eugen kept his cool and invited the policeman in, except instead of sitting down and talking to them, he pulled out a gun and fired three times at the policeman. Apparently, he was only good at shooting people in the back of the head because all three of those shots missed their mark and the police were unharmed. Since none of them were carrying a weapon, they had to wrestle Eugen to the ground and then one of them grabbed a hammer and hit Eugen in the head with it, knocking him out. So, all of this was going down about the same time that the Snow White movie was making its debut. Once Eugen was locked up, he decided it wasn't worth pretending anymore. He freely admitted to all of the murders, spilling all of the horrible, grisly details. When he went to trial just over a year later in March of 1939, Roger Millian, John Blanc, and the girlfriend who cashed the traveler's checks, Colette Trico, all stood trial with him. Colette was acquitted. Blanc was given just 20 months in prison for the small part that he'd played in the scheme. But Roger Millian and Eugen Weidmann were both sentenced to death. However, Millian's sentence was eventually commuted to life in prison while Eugen's stuck. So, on June 17, 1939, it was time for Eugen's sentence to be carried out. At 4.30 in the morning, he was taken out of the prison to a guillotine waiting there to behead him. The public had come out in droves to watch the execution. The crowd, 
including the mother of one of the victims, was only allowed to get within a hundred yards of the guillotine. But the crowd was restless, and perhaps a bit unruly, and some people climbed on tops of buildings and smokestacks in an attempt to get a better view of what was about to happen. At first, Eugen snarled and fought against his captors, but eventually he calmed down and allowed them to put him in place under the giant blade. Moments later, that blade fell, ending Eugen's life. So, if you can remember from clear back at the beginning of this story, I said that the main person involved would forever be remembered in history for something. You see, due to the massive, slightly unruly crowd who were able to clearly see the execution, France decided to no longer kill prisoners in that way. At least, not publicly. Eugen was the last person to ever be publicly executed by guillotine in France. The guillotine was still used occasionally until the 1970s, but that was behind closed doors and the public never saw any of it. Definitely not a distinction I would want. This next story I have for you isn't long, but it's definitely shocking. This headline comes from the Winchester Sun out of Winchester, Kentucky. The headline says, Man mistaken as robber is slain by Illinois policeman. Sometimes you can tell from a headline that the story is going to be a little bit crazy. And I must say this one is a lot worse than the headline makes it sound. This story happened in Rockford, Illinois, and the victim was a man named Benjamin Mullen. Benjamin was a 47-year-old gold salesman. He was originally from Mississippi, but I don't know how long he'd been living in Illinois when this tragic incident happened. I do know that one day he was robbed. Interestingly enough, that's about all the article says about the actual robbery. I looked in other sources and got the same information. I don't know how many robbers there were, or how much gold of his they got away with, or even if the robber or robbers were ever caught. What happened next kind of overshadowed all of that. At some point, someone called the cops and told them that there had been a robbery. The cops responded to an office building in town. They cleared the first floor, then climbed the stairs to the second floor, but they still didn't see anything, so they kept climbing. When they got to the last staircase leading up to the third floor, they saw a man crouching next to one of the stair posts at the top of the stairs. They immediately stopped their ascent and yelled for the man to put his hands up, fearing that he might have a gun. The man didn't comply. They probably yelled again, but the man didn't say anything in return, and he refused to put his hands up. So, one of the officers decided to shoot the man in the neck. Okay, I don't know if he aimed for the neck, or if he was aiming for an arm and just had really bad aim. Either way, when the cops finished climbing the stairs to see who had just been shot, they discovered that they had shot the victim of the robbery, Benjamin Mullen. He had been handcuffed to the stair post, and his mouth was gagged, meaning he could neither put his hands up 
nor say anything in response to the cops yelling at him. Benjamin was taken to the hospital, but he didn't survive. He passed away. The two cops were temporarily suspended for their actions, but then they were reinstated just two days later when it was determined that their actions were justified. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the December 21st, 1937 edition of the Vernon Daily Record out of Vernon, Texas. This headline says, They Escaped from Alcatraz. Okay, that definitely got my attention. I'm going to read you the first paragraph. It says, Uncertain whether they escaped in a waiting boat, swam through almost impossible currents to mainland, or were drowned, federal officers carried out an intense search for Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe, the only two prisoners ever to escape Alcatraz prison in San Francisco Bay. Now, you might think you know this story, but I'm guessing at least some of you will be wrong. Growing up, the escape story that I always heard about when talking about Alcatraz was the escape of Frank Morris and the England brothers. There was even a movie made about it. Those men have never been found, and many believe that their escape was successful and that the men went on to live their lives outside prison walls. It's a famous story. But that's not today's story. Those men escaped in the 1960s, and we're dealing with a story that took place nearly 25 years earlier. Like the article said, our story's escapees were Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe, and they were doing time in Alcatraz at the same time as some pretty infamous men. You might have heard of some of them, like Machine Gun Kelly and Al Capone. During the years that Alcatraz was an active, operating prison, there were more than a dozen escape attempts by prisoners. In all of the cases, the prisoners were either A. found and returned to their cells, B. shot and killed while trying to escape, or C. found floating in the bay or near the shore. That is, in all of the cases except two. The famous escape from the 1960s, and the story I'm about to tell you. First, I'm going to give you a little background on these two men, and then I'll go into the details of their escape. Theodore Cole, or Teddy as I believe he was called, and as I'm going to refer to him as now, from now on, and Ralph Rowe had both been transferred to Alcatraz from prisons in Oklahoma. Both of the men were bank robbers, and both had spent time at the high-security prison Leavenworth. In 1936, they were both transferred to Alcatraz, and at the time, the island prison had only been open for a couple of years. Teddy started his life of crime when he was just 14. And his crimes weren't just mischievous teenage boy crimes, but rather very violent crimes. By the time he was in his early 20s, a judge decided to throw the book at him, and he sentenced Teddy to death by electric chair. The sentence was shocking to many, since Teddy had never actually killed anyone. But the judge said, quote, The boy is a potential killer, and he deserves such a sentence. People were terrified that judges were handing out death sentences to potential murderers 
and they began to protest Teddy's sentence. Teddy appealed his sentence, and he won. His prison sentence was reduced to just 15 years. Well, fast forward a little bit, and guess what? True to the first judge's prediction, Teddy did end up committing murder. He murdered his cellmate. Teddy claimed it was self-defense, and the jury for that trial deadlocked. The case was eventually dropped without a conclusion. Well, that wasn't the end of Teddy's adventures by far, and in November of 1934, he decided to attempt escaping from prison for the first time. He hid inside a laundry bag and managed to make it all the way out of the prison gates and into town. Instead of just disappearing into the crowd, though, Teddy took a hostage, fled to Texas, and then committed a few more robberies before being recaptured. The other man in this story, Ralph Rowe, started his life of criminal activity as a teenager, too. When he ended up in a gun battle with police, his girlfriend, and another criminal, Ralph was the only one from his side of the fight to make it out alive. He was sent to prison with a life sentence. Anyway, as I said earlier, eventually both Ralph and Teddy ended up at Alcatraz. Both of the men were assigned to work in the prison's mat shop. Basically, they were using old tires to make mats for use by the Navy. While they were working there, the men started cooking up a plan to escape. They figured they could saw through the bars on the windows of the mat shop, break the glass, and escape down to the shoreline. Easy peasy, right? The men knew they would only have one chance at this, so they had to take their time and not rush things. Guards came around every 30 minutes or so, so they would work for a while on their escape plan while in the mat shop and then cover up the evidence every time the guards would come around. They were slowly sawing through the bars on the windows and then hiding the evidence of what they'd done by covering the weak areas with shoe polish and grease. Then... On the day of their escape, they bent the bars out, broke the glass with a wrench, and then fled through the open window. They still weren't in the clear, though. There was a high wire fence they had to get through. But with the help of that wrench, they were able to force the lock open on the gate. When it was discovered that Teddy and Ralph had escaped, authorities were able to follow their trail through the gate, and discovered that they had dropped down about 20 feet to the beach. But then, all traces of them disappeared. All they found was the wrench that the men had used to assist their escape. Nobody knew for sure, since nobody saw them, but it was believed that Teddy and Ralph either used old tires to float on, or used fuel canisters somehow. Well, the search for the pair of escapees stretched on for days and they were officially listed as missing and wanted fugitives. But very few people believed that they were still alive. If you've ever been to San Francisco, you'll know that the water isn't the same as it is down by the warm, sunny beaches of Southern California. Nope. It can be quite cold up there, even in the summer. And Teddy and Ralph escaped in the middle of December. And it was somewhat stormy weather the night they escaped, too. The water was choppy, and it was foggy out. So foggy that it was believed that there was no way the men could have seen the shore, meaning they wouldn't have known what direction to swim to safety. 
It also meant that due to the low visibility, boats wouldn't have been out there to pick them up either. Despite these searches, most people believed that the two men never survived that first night. People believed they were swept out of the bay into open ocean and drowned. Just like when the three men escaped decades later in the 1960s, supposed sightings of Ralph and Teddy would be reported to authorities for years. At one point, two hitchhikers claimed to have met the men and even identified them by their pictures. Four years after their escape, an article in the San Francisco Chronicle claimed that the men were alive and well and living in South America, which, if I remember correctly, was a claim of the 1960s escapees, too. Anyway, according to the newspaper, their reporter had talked to some inmates who claimed to have known about Teddy and Ralph's escape plan before it happened. If they made it to safety, the pair agreed that they would send a postcard back to the prison that had this code phrase. Business was good in July. Buried somewhere in the text. The inmates claimed that they did receive a note saying just that in July of 1938, a year after the escape. Another time, a taxi driver from back in Oklahoma claimed that he'd been shot by two men, and he recognized them as Ralph and Teddy. Despite the clues and the rumors and the supposed sightings, no proof that the two men survived their escape attempt has ever come about. In 86 years, no speck of their clothing or bodies has been found. So what do you think? Did Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe drown in the cold water of San Francisco Bay? Or did they accomplish the impossible and escape from Alcatraz? For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Journal and Courier out of Lafayette, Indiana. Remember, this was December, and the holidays are often a time when people host guests and have dinner parties in their homes. They needed to have enough dishes to feed everyone from. Well, Loeb's, and I assume that was a department store there, was having a sale on their imported china that had ivory bands and gold-striped handles and rims. You could get a 12-piece serving set of china, a 94-piece set, for just $29.99. I don't think you can even buy a four-serving set of cheap plastic dishes for that price anymore. Of course, in today's prices, the china set would be around $600. Probably still a good deal. Friends, thanks for joining me for this look back at December 21st, 1937 the day Snow White and the Seven Dwarves made its debut. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about what went on that day, and I hope you have a great holiday season, no matter how you celebrate. Hopefully one thing that will make it even better is that I have a mini-episode planned for this Thursday. Yes, that's two episodes in one week, again. This mini-episode will feature happy stories pertaining to Christmas, and I think you'll like it. Stay subscribed to know as soon as I release even more episodes, and I'll talk to you later.